Well, thank you, Pete, and this church for your hospitality and of the previous speakers. I stand on the shoulders of Brian and Cameron and Ryan, as will be apparent as the sermon gets going. This is the topic Pete gave me is the, the good news of glorification. So I want to start by asking, what is it that you hope for? Not what is it that you wish for. Like, I wish a Cleveland championship, but that ain't going to happen. Uh, what do you hope for? Biblically, hope isn't just a mere wishing. A, we, hope, we wish this comes true. Biblically, hope is always based on knowledge, right? Hope is basically just faith into the future. So if you have a promise from God and you're rightly interpreting it, you can say, I have this hope. It's not just a wish, it's a real hope. One thing I've realized is the most precious promises in this book to me, depend on my most pressing problems. Right? The bigger the problem I have, the more the promise that relates to that problem, the more it means to me. So, for instance, my body. Right? I turned 50 in January. And I now realize when I come home, when I have my book bag on my shoulder, I, don't, I no longer throw it on the ground. I put it somewhere up on a table. Because I might want to get into that later. And I'm, I just start to plan ahead for things like that. Um, my mind, right? Just this week, I, I was asked to do something on Wednesday, and I'm, this was, I was asked a couple weeks ago, and I'm looking at my calendar, and I see I have a, something scheduled for Wednesday, and somehow in my mind, I, I thought, I'm free. And so I emailed, like, yeah, I'm free. And then the next, like, oh my goodness, why did I do that? And I can't even blame anyone else on, this is clearly on me. So maybe it's because I'm 50 now and I start to, I guess, the joy of rediscovery. I, I know a lot, I just can't always retrieve it when I need to. Or even more, um, not just my body, my mind, but, but my heart. I used to think that when I was 50, when I was in my 30s, I thought by the time I'm 50, most if not all of my flaws will be fixed. And the good news is, they are. If by fixed you mean ain't changing them now. <laughs> They're pretty much, this is who I am. So, very often, because I like to try to be funny, and I, I say things that I think are funny, and I cringe later, like, oh, why did you say that? Or why did you do that? And so I, I no longer try to self-medicate and try to talk myself and like, it's okay, you didn't mean it, you meant well. I, I, here's, this is, I teach in seminary, so it'll be a bit academic, but here's my three-step process now. I, I say, yuck. That, you were a jerk. Like, that's just, why are you still like that? Yuck. And then I go, yep, that's who I am. In myself, I'm a sinner. In myself, I'm arrogant. I'm a jerk. I'm not always, in myself, I'm not nice to be around. And then I go, yippee. Because I'm not just in myself, I'm in Christ. That's the true truth about me. That's the reality of who I am. So as Martin Luther said, when the devil would come and tell him all the ways he messed up, he would promptly agree with him. And so you're right, Satan. I am that bad. And by the way, you left out a couple. I'm worse than you just told me I was. And thank you, by the way, for reminding me of my sin. If it's okay with you, I'd like to just take this moment and celebrate my salvation. And Luther says, if you do that, 
Every time the devil comes and reminds you of your sin, you slit the devil's throat with his own sword. And pretty soon he just leaves you alone. So one of Luther's famous phrases, simul justus et peccator. At the same time, I'm righteous and I'm a sinner. In myself, by myself, yuck. It's embarrassing, the thoughts I have and the words that I say. But I'm not in myself. I'm in Christ. And so even though in myself I'm a sinner, the reality is I'm in Christ and so I'm a saint. So I, I need help for my body, for my mind, for my heart, and also just, as you can tell, socially. Uh, relationships, right? Um, the older you get, the more you realize, like, who really cares? Who do I really matter to? I wonder of all the people that I know, which of them would actually come to my funeral? Which ones would actually cry? At my funeral. By the way, watch my wife. She'd better cry. Right? I want tears. I want, her, I want to know that she misses me. So even relationally, I, I, I need help. Well, the answer to all of these problems, to my body, for my mind, for my heart, and for my relationships, the answer to all of them is Jesus. Right? Colossians 127. Paul says, I'm making known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory is Jesus. We Christians believe in the three R's, right? We believe in the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all things, right? The three R's. The return of Christ the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all things. And this hope that we have, and it's not just a wishing, it's, it's for real, it's for sure. It's the promise we have in the Bible. This hope we have answers all of these questions. Let's start with relationally or socially. Um, what Ryan was saying about going to work and, and knowing that you don't go to work to find your significance and how, that free, how the gospel frees you to go to work and just serve. I, I want to maybe call him up and just, Ryan, can you preach it at me like once a week and remind me of this truth that, that I need to hear again. Because my, my new life verse, and I change life verses every few years, but right now it's Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. What that tells me as Ryan mentioned, is who I am is who I am in Christ. Full stop, period, end of story. It's crazy when you think about it, but all of life, all of your life, all of my life, all of anybody's life comes down to one thing. How well do you know one man? That's nuts if you think about it, right? I've never seen Jesus, right? Peter says, those we we have not seen him yet, we love him still, right? I've never seen Jesus. I've never heard his voice. I can't imitate him. I, I don't know what he looks like. He lived on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago. 
spoke a very different language. If he said, I love you, in, in Aramaic, his language, I wouldn't even understand him. I can't understand Aramaic, right? He, this is a foreigner. And yet all of my life, all of my meaning comes down to, am I in Christ? It's not about how much I know, how much I've studied, how much success we have in the culture, how much money we have. None of it. It all comes down to our relationship with one person. If we have received fullness in Christ, that means we are secure. We are safe. We've been delivered from death and from hell. It also means we're significant. We are somebody. We matter. Who we are is who we are in Christ. End of story. And that's so freeing. That means we can try things. Right? If you're a businessman, you start a business. If it takes off and you become a multimillionaire and you're in the cover of Fortune 500 magazine, that is great. Thank God for that success. But you know what? Nothing's changed. Who you are is who you are in Christ. And if you start a business and it goes bankrupt and you fail and you lose your house, that's a tragedy. But still, nothing's really changed. Because who you are is who you are in Christ. It's so freeing to realize this truth that none of us have to change the world. Right? There's this pressure we have, especially young people today, where they've been taught since they were kids how amazing they are. Right? So my daughter played soccer. The first year, they, every, they didn't keep score, but every team got a plaque that said first place. The second season, every kid on every team got a plaque, most valuable player. That's not even possible, actually. I pulled her because, what's next, Hall of Fame? You, and the kids know, but they just get these plaques and kind of toss them in the closet. They never look at them again. But they've been told, we never let them lose, right? And so they don't even know if they can really win. And then they, but they've been told how amazing they are. And they, they graduate from college and they're in their late 20s. And they have a job that looks pretty much like their parents. And they think, well, what happened? I was special. I, I was supposed to be the, the anointed one, the one who's going to change the world. And I'm not changing much of anything. That's why Ryan's message is so crucial. Who you are is who you are in Christ. That's a gift. That means if you enjoy great success, praise God, but still nothing's changed. You're free to fail and you're free to, su- to succeed. Colossians 3, 3 and 4, Paul adds, Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's not just that Christ adds to our life or Christ is the means to our fullness of life. Christ is our life. Right? To have life is to know Jesus. And to not know and love Jesus, to not be found in Jesus, is to have death. So let me just be very clear about this as we talk about the future and glorification. The center of glory is Jesus. Jesus is the hope of glory. So you and I are entirely part of the natural world. Every part of you, both your body and your soul, are part of creation. 
No part of you is divine. No part of you is above the line. There's the infinite God and an infinite chasm between him and us finite creatures. But as humans made in the image of this God, we are different from everything else that God made. Unlike everything else, you and I, even though we're entirely part of the natural realm, there's nothing down here that will ultimately satisfy us. We are unique in made in God's image in that even though we are entirely natural, we have a higher supernatural end, a hunger, a desire. As Augustine said in his Confessions, Lord, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. So we know this, right? When you're a kid, you you watch a kid having a one-year-old birthday party and they cry and cry and cry until they get their birthday cupcake. And then they think they're going to be happy, but pretty soon they're not. They start crying again. Then you get a little bit older and think, if I could just get that baseball mitt, I'll be happy. If I can just get that doll, I'll be happy. Or if I just get that bike, if I can just get him to go out with me, or if I can just get her to go with me to the, to the prom or dance or whatever, or just go steady with me, or if I can just get into that school or just get that major. You notice it's always the next thing. If I can just get that job or just get, marry that person, if we can just have children, what were you thinking? Um, if I can just have grandkids, that's better, right? But if I can just retire, it's always something more, right? In fact, now with researchers of cupcakes, we've come all the way full circle. If I can just get another cupcake, I'll be happy. But when will we ever learn? It's, it's never anything down here, even if... So a year ago, Cleveland finally did win a championship. And I didn't know what to feel. Like, I'm 50, and this has never happened. Any Cleveland team... I called my family in the basement, watch this, this might actually happen. And it did. But you know what? It didn't change anything. It's still pretty much the same. Nothing here will satisfy you. Tom Brady was on 60 Minutes eight years, 10 years ago now, and he was asked by the interviewer about life. And Tom Brady, who at that time had won three Super Bowls, was dating a supermodel and cover boy good looks. He does wear Ugg boots, so there's, there's that. But he has a lot going for him. And on 60 Minutes, he said, why do I have all this success, all this stuff, and I feel like there's got to be something more. And the 60 Minutes interviewer asked him, what is it? And Tom said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Listen, we know it, but listen to someone who's reached the top of the ladder. No matter where we are on our ladder, career, family, if we're just starting out, if we're somewhere in the middle, if we're getting near the top, just know that if you get to the top, that ain't it. Only Jesus can satisfy. That's why only Jesus is the hope of glory. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in verse 12. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Someday, and this kind of scary, really, someday you and I will be fully known, exposed before the one who has the highest, most impeccable standards, the standards we can't meet. That's why we need Jesus. We'll be fully known, fully exposed, and also fully embraced. So that relational, social 
interpersonal need that we have, it will only ever be fully met, not in this life, not in even our spouse or our kids or our parents or our best friends. That need for relationship and to really matter, to truly matter to somebody, that will only be fulfilled when Christ returns. And we are fully exposed before him. And we see our Savior. Well, we're in 1 Corinthians 13. This transitions also to the mind because he says, then I shall know fully. So there'll be, there will be redemption even for our minds. Now, knowing fully there doesn't mean I will know as God will know. In context here, verses 9 and 10, Paul is talking about prophecy that's in part and then the perfect will come, which will be better than prophecy. So I think he means here we'll know the whole story, right? When you're at the end of the story, you look back and you see how all the parts fit. He doesn't mean that we'll have God's knowledge because the first rule of all Christian thought is God is up here and we are down here. We are finite. Finite cannot comprehend the infinite. So 1 John 3, 2 says, When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The person of the Godhead that we will see is Jesus. Roman Catholics believe in what they call the beatific vision. In the end, in heaven, without any mediation at all, you look straight into the essence of God. And it's so glorious, you can't look away. You just lock in. And forever and ever and ever, you're just looking and gazing at the divine, the essence of God. Protestants have always said, yeah, that'll kill you. Right? If you look straight in the essence of God, that's like looking straight into the sun. You would, if you ever get a straight look at God, you would be incinerated. You would be vaporized right on the spot. Like in that Indiana Jones movie where the guy looks at the Holy Grail and just kind of melts away. Like that, but faster. So we say Jesus fully reveals God. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But we also need a buffer. So this is kind of cool, but Jesus' human nature at the same time fully reveals God to us because he is God and also protects us from the glory of God. In the scripture, every time Jesus pulls back his human humanity just a bit so the glory starts to shine through, what always happens? Man of Transfiguration, Revelation 1, his best friends, like John, fall at his feet like a dead man. As God said to Moses, when Moses said, God, I, I feel like we're so close, let me in. God said to Moses, like Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. If no one can see me and live, if I let you see all of me, you would just vaporize. So the point is, we'll never know what God knows because we're not God. And thank God for that. Aren't you glad to know that someone's above your pay grade? Like, you are not in charge of the world. Someone has got this. But redemption, final restoration, will affect our minds. We talk about, in theology, the noetic effects of sin. That sin has blinded us and also made us less good at thinking. We we make more mental mistakes. Well, when Christ returns, our minds will be restored. They won't be super finite. They'll They'll still be finite, but they'll be restored. And by the way, because we'll never know what God knows, that's also why the new earth will not be boring. 
You'll never run out of things to discover. You'll never run out of things to learn. Because we'll be finite. There will always be something more to know about God. Something more to learn about his world. Then, of course, the best for our minds, Isaiah 11, chapter, Isaiah 11, verse 9, when Christ returns, the knowledge of the God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The sea is pretty much covered by water. So the whole world will be filled with the glory of God, just like that. What about our heart? Well, this is the great promise of glorification. When Christ returns, there'll be no more sin. Again, 1 John 3, 2. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That means someday my flaws, my, not just flaws, my sins, my selfish rebellion, it will be fixed. Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Colossians 1, 22. God has reconciled you in Christ to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's going to be pretty great, right? No more apologies. No more sarcastic put-downs. Gossip, hurt feelings, conniving, scheming, spin, eye-rolling, looking at your phone when I'm talking to you. No more taking sides. No more fights, spats, rage, hitting, grabbing, weapons, or war. Everything right now you do not like about yourself, everything right now you do not like about the world, you can trace it all the way back to the fall. When Christ returns and the fall is, the curse is reversed and the fall is lifted, and even we are restored, there'll be nothing not to like about us and about this world. And if that's our future, then one, cool, one important application of that is, right now we should be really careful never ever to celebrate sin. Right? A lot of us spend too much time online or with TV shows or movies looking at things we know we have no business looking at. Why are we entertaining ourselves with sin? We're Christians. We're to be fighting sin. We're to be hating sin. When has this happened to you where you've realized, oh, that's what sin causes? It happened to me, um, I think around 2000. It was my mentor who was in the hospital room. So the order had dissected. Uh, a couple of days after that happened, I went to see him in the hospital. And I walked into the room and I thought, oh, I've got the wrong room. Because the person on the bed, this hulking, bloated figure, that was not my mentor. That was not my friend. As I'm backing out of the room, I see a Polaroid picture of my friend on the, on the wall. And I stopped. And I looked at the picture and looked at the bloated, bruised form in the bed with all the tubes coming out of him and looked back at the picture and said, oh, no, it's him. Right? Just three days before, he looked like the picture. Now he was on his way to, to death. And I realized in that moment, like, why is he even here? Well, he had an aorta burst, like his father. It was, a, it was a genetic defect. Well, why do we have those kinds of defects? Because we live in a fallen world. And I thought, I think I hate sin. 
Right? Sin is not my friend. Sin is nothing I should try to entertain myself with. How much fun can I have before I get caught? No, sin will one day remove from me and from you everyone and everything you ever cared about. So let's fight sin. Let's hate sin. Let's not try to entertain ourselves with it. So when Christ returns, the hope of glory, he will restore us relationally. He'll restore our hearts. And then, also our bodies. The Christian hope is for the resurrection of the body. This was always countercultural. In the time that Jesus rose from the dead, Greek culture, who knew their Plato very well, thought that the body is really a prison for the soul. So in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, when Paul says, My gospel of Christ crucified, it's foolishness, it's moronic to Greeks. It's because they said, Paul, first of all, your God is weak if he was crucified. That's, that's pretty weak. But if he is dead, good for him. His soul is free from his body. What kind of silly ninny God goes back for the body? Paul, you're, you're nuts. And so in Acts 17 in Athens, again, where they know their Greek philosophy, they listen to Paul explain the gospel until he gets to the part of the resurrection. Then they say, well, that, that's just stupid. Well, even today, in good churches like ours, we still have a too low view of the body. We still talk as if our bodies are our problem. We still talk as if we have this good soul that's just trapped in a body. Again, song. I love to sing this song. It's fun to sing this song. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison bars is flown. Really? God's world is a prison? That's not Bible. That's actually a pagan thought. Or we talk about our bodies being the temporary residence for our souls. The body's just a shell. The soul's the real me. And it sounds really pious, right? It sounds really spiritual. But if you say that, if you say the body's just a shell, the real me is the soul, what will you ever say to a transgender person who says, my body's male, but my spirit's really female. And I need to change my body to match my soul. We can't fall for this very Platonic pagan notion. The Christian hope is for the resurrection. So let me just make sure we're really clear about this. When we die, our bodies are buried or cremated. And our souls, praise God, our souls go to heaven. Never apologize for that, right? What a comfort. My soul goes to heaven to be with Jesus. Sure beats the alternative. But going to heaven is not the end of the story. right? If you read Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the saints in heaven right now, right now the saints in heaven are crying out, How long, O Lord? How long? Notice they're still in time. When you die, you don't magically step into eternity. Only God is eternal. We are temporal creatures. We don't have eternal life. We have everlasting life. It's too late to have eternal life. We had a beginning, right? We were conceived. We were born. What we have is a life that never ends. And we have an everlasting life, not because our souls are somehow inherently indestructible. We have everlasting life because we have God's word. 
Right? The same God who made your body and soul from nothing could snuff them out from nothing if he chose to. But he won't. He's promised us we will live forever someplace, either with him or in the lake of fire. So we are creatures. We are completely dependent on God for our existence. And we will live forever with God if we're in Christ because he's promised us. So notice in Revelation 6, 9 to 11, the saints in heaven, they're still in time. And there's, they're also impatient. So careful, there's no suffering, there's no pain in heaven. But there is some impatience. How long, O Lord, till you return and avenge our blood? These are the martyrs who left this earth as losers. right? If you are killed, if your last moment on earth was you being killed, looks like you lost. You could not have left this world any worse than that. And that's the last we've seen of them. So, Lord, return. Bring us with you. Show the world. Vindicate us. We were on the right side of history all along. And also, they want their resurrection bodies, right? It's great to be a soul in heaven with Jesus, but even better, to be a whole person on earth with Jesus. And so the Christian hope is not for our souls to go to heaven. Again, praise God that that happens. But the Christian hope is even bigger than that. It's that when your soul goes to heaven, that's the first leg of a journey that's round trip. We pray for Christ's return. What's the last prayer of the Bible? Come, Lord Jesus. We don't pray, Lord, take us. We pray, Lord, you come. The Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 1 Corinthians 16, 23, Maranatha, which is not just a camp in Muskegon. It means, Lord, Come. Right? We, don't, we pray for Lord Jesus to come and resurrect our bodies. So you know what this means? If you're in Christ, you don't need a bucket list. You don't have to worry about fitting it all in because you only go around once. If you're a Christian, you don't only go around once. If you're a Christian, you're coming back. And you have forever with Christ to do what you didn't get to this time around. In fact, I'm afraid of heights, so I'm saving hang gliding for the new earth. Uh, why do it now? That's stupid. Just wait. You get all the fun and thrills without any of the risk. So we believe in the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and then the restoration of all things. So Jesus is the center of glory. He is the hope of glory. There's also a circumference, though. So three times in the Bible we're told the end is a new heaven, and heaven there just means the sky, the new heaven and new earth. Isaiah 65, 17 says it. 2 Peter 3, 10 says it. And Revelation 21, 3. Let's just look quickly at 2 Peter 3. And we're going to have more questions and answers. But we'll see here enough to get really excited about certainly Jesus, the center of glory, but even what all of life will be like when Jesus returns. So 2 Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. If you have a King James, it says the earth will be burned up. Now, this is even now debated point among New Testament scholars and what's the actual original Greek manuscript there. So there's two options. Either the earth will be burned up 
like the King James says, or ESV, I think, says, or will be laid bare, like the NIV says. Laid bare means the earth will be discovered for, for what it is. Again, we're not exactly sure, but let me just give you some reasons for thinking it will be not burned up, but laid bare. Now back in verse 6, Peter says, By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So Peter's comparing this coming fire to Noah's flood. Noah's flood did not annihilate the world, right? It cleansed the world. It washed all the sin and sinners away. And Peter says that was a destruction. And so this coming destruction by fire could very well be another, like a smelting furnace, a purging fire. Not annihilating, but a fire that cleanses everything. In 1 Peter 1, 7, Peter uses this analogy. He says, trials have come like a smelting furnace, that they will purify your faith like precious gold and silver. So we know Peter has in his repertoire this analogy of smelting furnace. I will say, so there's a fire that's coming, and it's intense heat. The fire may purge the earth, or it may annihilate the earth. It's actually a moot point. How we get from creation to new creation not exactly important, we still get to the same place. Think of um, the Apostle Paul or Peter. They have decomposed, I'm supposing, all the way to nothing. They are completely annihilated. And yet, the new earth will have Peter and will have Paul. And if God can do that with lots of people, he can certainly do that with the entire creation. So, if you think about your own body, this body may decompose all the way to nothing. Yet Scripture promises this body will rise again. If your resurrection body is too different from this present body that you have right now, then you will not have been redeemed, you will have been replaced. And that's not the Christian hope. It's for the resurrection. It's also important to say that theologically, Satan wins nothing in the end. Everything God made is good. Everything has been broken by Satan. And God wants everything back. So in the New Testament, you never find this phrase, new world, like a cartoonish figure with a poster, the end of the world is near. In the New Testament, you always have one world, cosmos, and this single cosmos has more than one eye on our age. So Jesus says in Matthew 12, 32, if you sin against the Holy Spirit, that sin will not be forgiven, neither in this age nor in the age to come. The Bible never talks about this world going away and a new world in its place. One cosmos, a single cosmos, that has more than one age. The age of creation, the fallen age, and then the final consummation age. So the fire that's coming, it could annihilate or it could cleanse. Either way, we get to the same place, a new heaven, new earth. So here's our question. This is what matters. Newness implies difference, right? Something's new about the new earth. And earth means something's still the same. So what's still the same and what's different? Again, I think that even in this room, we might disagree about some of these things and there are good men and women on both sides. But let me just... Um, Guide, or at least raise some of the questions and guide our thoughts. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Peter says, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. 
What kind of word is righteousness? It's not a word that describes things, right? It's a word that describes actions. Righteousness is what you do. So it's interesting that when Peter says there'll be a new heaven, a new earth, the, thing he's, the one thing he says is new is unlike this world, which is marked by sin and fallenness, the new world, that's the home of righteousness. And that fits with what God himself says. In Revelation 21.5, the voice from the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice God does not say, I'm making new things. What he says is, I'm taking all the things that are already here and I'm fixing them. I'm making them new. This also fits 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Or another alternate translation, if you're in Christ, the new creation has come. When you come to Christ, your being does not change. When you come to Christ, you don't gain six inches or a, a higher vertical leap or suddenly get a sense of humor, or your IQ does not jump 20 points. It's still you. It's still me. What is new about us is that sin nature is now, well, we have Romans 7, but we're we're now a new creation in Christ. We're, We're not just in ourselves and our sin. We're now in Christ. It's an ethical, it's a moral, a spiritual change. So, again, I'm not saying there won't be some new things on the new world, Will grass be translucent? Maybe. I don't know. But what I do know in Scripture is, the Scripture never says there'll be new things. What it says is, what we have will be fixed. Creation, fall, redemption. Everything God made is good. Everything broken by sin. Everything God wants to restore. So again, I'm, I'm not saying we have, we have lots of questions, but here's a good rule of thumb. If you want to know, what will the new earth be like? Well, if something belongs to creation, I think expect it to be here. Because creation is what God came to restore. If something belongs to the fall, it should be gone. Because that's what Christ came to eliminate. So if you read Revelation 21, verses 24 through 26, the New Jerusalem's gates are never shut. That symbolizes commerce and trade. And there are kings bringing their wealth into the city. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 3 through 11, says there'll be gold and silver and flocks of Kedar and rams of Neboeth, animals on the new earth. There will be animals on the new earth, right? So when your, when your dog dies, I, I, I don't think your dog necessarily goes to heaven, but there will be dogs on the new earth. No cats, because that's part of the fall. They'll be gone. But there will be dogs on the new earth, maybe one that looks suspiciously like yours. I'm not saying your dog's going to heaven, but there will be animals there. Isaiah 65, 21 says, On the new earth, they will build houses and dwell in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat its fruit. So again, as Ryan said, uh, normal is good. On the new earth, we're not going around trying to be epic, just normal, right? Be a normal person. That is restored. Uh, Two exceptions to my rule, if it's part of creation, it should be here. Part of the fall, it should be gone. One exception with creation is marriage. In Matthew 22, that trick question, woman with eight husbands that kept dying, who should be married to a new earth? And Jesus said, do you understand, there won't be marriage on the new earth? I think because of the fall, people die and they get divorced. 
And so there is remarriage. And so the fall so scrambles up marriage, even God can't put one marriage back together without violating another. And yet, Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, we'll all be married, actually, on the new earth, because marriage right now is just a shadow of this deeper, fuller marriage. We'll all be married to Christ. So clearly we'll know on the new earth, this was my spouse, this was my, these were my parents, these were my children, but it seems that, that those family units won't remain intact forever, even though we'll have intimacy with our family, but it'll be a, a broader intimacy, not as limiting as it is just in this life. Two things with the fall, which seem never to be fixed. Isaiah 65.25 says, On the new earth, dust will be the serpent's food. The snake is cursed in the garden, and that curse is never lifted. And Jesus, in John 20, after his resurrection, still bore his scars. Another consequence of the fall. I think that's important, because when we're on the new earth, and we've been there 10,000 years and counting, we'll never get proud and think, oh, wow, somehow I've earned this. Every time we see a snake, we'll remember our sin. Every time we see Jesus' scars, we'll remember the price he paid for us. So we have creation, fall, redemption, and then just really quickly, there's also a consummation, which means God not only restores this world, he takes it to a higher place. The end is even better than the beginning of the story, in at least five ways. First of all, in the Garden of Eden, God came and left and came and left, right? In the end, Revelation 21, verse 3, now God's dwelling is with us, and God himself will be with us and be our God. God with us. That's Emmanuel, right? That's a better. God came and left in the end. He is dwelling here with us forever. There were also another better is in the beginning, Adam and Eve created in righteousness, but with the possibility of sinning. On the new earth, we'll be not only made righteous in Christ, but with the absolute certainty, the ironclad guarantee that God will not allow us to mess this up. We'll have a peace of mind Adam and Eve never could have had. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about spiritual bodies, which still physical, but seems that um, unable to be destroyed or, or die. We'll also have a higher culture. The Bible starts in a garden, ends in a city. Think European city, not downtown, urban, blighted American cities. But think culture, right? God blesses, honors the works of our hands. So I think when Jesus returns, I'm guessing we'll enter the new earth at whatever level, cultural level, we've achieved. With all, with all the defects and all the fall, gone. And then one more better of the consummation that's here, not despite the fall, but actually in part because of it. In 1 Peter 1.12, Peter says, there are some things even angels don't understand. Angels stand on tiptoe trying to get a sense of the grace of God. Adam and Eve knew that God was good, but they could not have understood the grace of God like only forgiven sinners can. So on the new earth, we'll know God through Christ even better than Adam and Eve, who walked with God. So what's your hope? The future, if you think about it, the future 
actually defines the present. Right? It, it, I'm going to blow your mind for a second here, but it feels like, we're, like time is going this way, doesn't it? It feels like we're moving into the future, like time goes this way. Actually, time goes in reverse. The future becomes the present, and the present becomes the past. Time is coming at us, like on a treadmill. It's being fed to us. If time is coming at us, that is in part why future is the truth about you and me. The future is what defines us. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, the leading edge of the future is already here. The future is bleeding into the present through Christ. If you're in Christ, the new creation has come. So Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. Christ has saved us from hell. I never want to forget that. I never want to minimize that. Thank God what he saved us from. Everlasting torment in hell. But he's also saved us for something. He saved us for himself. Christ, the hope of glory. He saved us for life. To know Christ is to live. And he's also saved us for this place, this world. If you're a joint heir with someone, you get their stuff, right? If you're the heir, heirs with Christ, well, you get what he has. What does he have? Everything. When Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth, that wasn't a metaphor. He meant that literally. If you're in Christ, someday this whole planet will belong to you as you serve him. So the future defines us. That means right now, relationally, you matter. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter how many friends you have. It doesn't matter what's going on in your family, if your kids are respecting you or not. If you're in Christ, you matter. If you're in Christ, your heart is already being fixed. If you're in Christ, you're already holy. Yes, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner in ourselves, but we're not in ourselves. We're in Christ. If we're in Christ, our mind is in the process of being fixed. We have, as Cameron said, we have the mind of Christ. and We have the word of God. We, we have divine revelation, authoritative words from God that help our feeble and flawed minds to interpret the world we live in. And if you're in Christ, the whole earth belongs to your Father. And you're his child, the heir of all of this. And probably the best news is all this future, it's guaranteed. Romans 8, those God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ. And so Jude ends, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Father, thank you for Jesus and his great salvation. Jesus is our life. In knowing him, we find life. In knowing him, 
and being found in him, we are able to enjoy this life. Even as we know this life is just the appetizer for the main meal of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we pray, as the Lord himself taught us to pray, come, send your Son, and resurrect the bodies of our loved ones, transform these bodies, and restore all things, so that we may live with with your Son in this world, enjoying the delights of your redeemed creation with your saints forever and ever. Amen.